regardless of how technology changes, uh, we need policy that enables us to be able to provide content for citizens. Hello, you are listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Lisa Gonzalez. Today, Chris interviews Mike Wassenaar. Mike is a senior development officer with the Free Press. He has extensive experience working in community media. Public access, educational, and government video programs, often referred to as PEG, provide local programming to the communities they serve. As media becomes increasingly concentrated in the hands of a small number of corporate providers, public access plays a critical role in local information delivery. Mike provides an expert's perspective on where the problems are and what local communities need to consider when they think about the future of public access. Here are Mike and Chris. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm on the phone with Mike Wassenaar, a senior development officer with Free Press and someone who I got to know when he was leading the uh, St. Paul Neighborhood Network here in Minnesota. He has 20 years of experience working with community media and radio and television. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Chris. Thank you. Mike, I'm excited to talk to you because, first of all, you've got a great voice, um, and you have an incredible amount of knowledge, and you're never afraid to speak your mind. So um, let's get into this. Uh, what is the role of the public access uh, channels in the modern era? Well, I mean, I think you need to look at public access community media organizations, and I'm going to speak sort of more broadly here also about government access organizations as well. Um, as civic organizations that produce content, do training, and really help to provide civic information uh, at the local level. Um, and in, in, in the best sense, uh, communities that have strong, healthy um, public educational government channels, community media operations, uh, are providing information that other communities simply don't have about the, their lives, the culture, civic information uh, that's going on from day to day. Um, that's what the best of these organizations are doing across the country. Um, and it's kind of a shame that you don't have one of these types of organizations in every community of any type of size, uh, because they can provide information that a commercial um, media source simply isn't interested in doing. That's very interesting, and I'd like to just very quickly provide a thumbnail sketch of how it came to be that some places, like here in St. Paul, we have a terrific uh, a station like that, and other cities may not have it. Can you uh, step us back and just explain how that came to be? Yeah, in some local communities, you had a combination of very good state law because um, the way in which the federal law was set up governing uh, local cable uh, franchising. Uh, states could set up uh, uh, certain types of franchising regimes. And then municipalities within those states had either a great deal of power or did not have a great deal of power to be able to negotiate with corporations for use of their property, for their rights of way to be able to make money as they deliver services to people uh, around the municipalities. Um, so one of the provisions that local communities negotiated for when these franchises were set, set up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and even recently in the last five or ten years um, are these community content networks, um, either networks that are based in local colleges and public schools, uh, local governments, or nonprofit entities that work with the public, um, you know, much like a library does to provide content uh, that local communities need. Um, so you, you see in some states where there's really sound law, 
um, a, a flowering of this type of service. Uh, in other states where there uh, is not as strong a law, which I, I believe is in the community interest, you don't see as many of these operations. Um, so they're relatively rarer in certain types of states. In a state like Minnesota, uh, there was actually a very, very uh, strong law that was set up in the 1980s when franchising came to the state. Cable came to the state relatively late compared to other states around the country. Um, and as a result, you actually had a, a flowering of these types of organizations, both government-based organizations as well as nonprofit organizations, and organizations that were in small communities uh, in the state as well as large communities like, Minnesota, like St. Paul. Um, so that's really the reason you, you had this sort of tradition set up, um, and that's why it doesn't exist in certain states. It seems like the history of the, the public access is really tied to the, the cable industry. Um, so what is the future like in the present? Is it still going to be tied to the cable companies, and is that appropriate? I think that it's necessarily tied because of the funding source in many communities. Um, many of these organizations, either government-based or nonprofit-based, have large majorities of their funding based on, on funding that comes through franchise uh, fees uh, of one sort or another, um, and then passes through a local government local government option or local government budgeting. So as the cable industry changes, this is going to put that funding stream, I think, in some question in many communities. More and more of the revenue that the cable industry receives comes not through a cable fee, but through Internet uh, revenue. And Internet revenue is not subject to local, local franchise uh, oversight and local fees and t uh, that are based upon that revenue source. So... What's happening now is that revenue growth is happening actually everywhere in the cable industry, but it's most explosive in, on the Internet side. And more and more of the cable industry's interest will be in, in um, putting um, their activity on that side of the industry that's not locally regulated. That is a problem for local governments uh, across the country. Um, primarily because they rely upon those revenues to be able to provide these types of services. Um, so that's, I think, going to be a big issue for uh, these organizations and government entities uh, over the course of the next, say, five to ten years, as more and more of that revenue stream goes toward the Internet side, which is not locally regulated. That's actually a federal issue that needs to be brought up um, by local governments and uh, by nonprofits around the country as the industry is changing. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing, I think, is that as you're looking at more content development and uh, viewer, listener, media, uh, consumer patterns change, organizations that are interested in serving local communities need to be thinking about how they're reaching, them with, how they're reaching those communities with content. And I think that means that you have to be diversifying your revenue as well as diversifying the things that you're doing. That's why you're seeing organizations interested, for example, in community radio licensing. Um, there were uh, a host of uh, nonprofits as well, uh, nonprofits around the country that do cable access television who uh, applied in this latest round of uh, low-power FM uh, applications that the FCC opened up uh, in 2013. The reason why they're doing that is because they're trying to find ways to reach more people, 
to cultivate audience and to build more meaning at the local level. And I think that's the promise of these types of content networks, frankly, uh, is that in an era when there's more and more media consolidation, we need to be thinking about ways in which we can be developing local content that's meaningful for audiences because I think people are starved for content. They're starved for meaning. Uh, they're starved for information about what's happening in their local government. Um, and we are facing sort of a crisis of civic information if we're not investing in these types of resources. So if I could, if I could sum up, what I'm hearing is that the, the, these public access centers have been tied in the past to the, the cable networks, and to some extent that was their only way of distribution. But more importantly, it was their source of funding that allowed them to do a lot of trainings, to, to make equipment available, uh, and things that I think we'll get into in a second. Um, but as we as we move forward, the threat to public access isn't so much um, that they're going that they might lose channels of distribution on the television channel lineup, but more that they're going to be not having the revenue that's necessary in order to uh, train people and have the equipment that people would need to create content. Uh, is that fair? I, I think that's a fair characterization. I, I won't discount the threat the threat of not being able to get distribution on uh, content networks. That, that still is a problem, and it's a major sticking point in negotiations around the country right now. Um, cable operators are looking to reduce the amount of capacity on their TV networks and increase the capacity on their Internet networks. That, 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 that division between Internet and, and, and locally regulated cable is driving a lot of this behavior. So that you're, you're actually seeing the cable industry try to recapture channels, um, recapture real estate, if you will, uh, because they're not building more real estate, <laughs> okay? They're they're not putting uh, massive amounts of more money into their cable plants. Rather than putting money into making a better system, they'd rather just kick off local channels that aren't producing any revenue from them in sort of their narrow perspective. That is well, that is correct. And if they're trying to increase their increase their uh, um, increase their revenue, if they're trying to increase their uh, worth to their investors. Um, you can understand the logic, uh, and uh, I don't. I don't disagree with the logic. I, I disagree with the means, and I disagree with the. And I disagree with the, the outcome. The other issue that people should be aware of is that there, in the last decade, there's been uh, an enormous pressure on local government finances. So the 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 double whammy, if you will, is that local governments are under increasing pressure just to be able to um, uh, deliver basic services. In some communities, there is an open debate whether or not uh, this type of information service is a basic service. Um, I'd make the argument that it can be. In many communities, it may not be defined as one. I mean, it's a little bit, little bit like what's happening in many communities with libraries. Uh, you will see local communities who are passionate about their libraries, who support their libraries, and you'll see some that actually close them. And that does not better... Uh, the information uh, wealth of the community when those resources go down. So, I mean, that's the other pressure that's happening, Chris, is that local governments are under extreme financial pressure, uh, and they're looking for any source of revenue they can to cut to be able to balance their books. So that, that's the other sort of part of, the, of the, the economic pressure that's on these channels. I wanted to highlight something that, that you did say, and I just want to push in on it very quickly, which is that the the cable companies use our public rights of way for their wires, and their business model would not work without it. 
And now in a number of states, they've changed the laws to really restrict what cities can ask for in compensation. Um, but, but no city is able to charge for uh, the rights of way usage by cable companies for delivering uh, broadband or telephone services, which is uh, I know a lot of local governments are frustrated about for the reason that you said, which is that the revenues from the television channels is going down, which is what the city um, gets compensation for in the rights of way, whereas the revenues for the broadband and the uh, telephone are going up. And uh, the um, the us taxpayers, you know, the ones who maintain the right of way, our land that's being used for it, um, we're seeing less and less money, even as the cable companies make more and more money. I, I think that's a fair characterization. I think the other way to think about this from a content provider's perspective is that um, it's the same cable that's providing content through different mechanisms, one through a television mechanism, the other one through uh, what the FCC has classified as an information service, an internet, internet mechanism. Why do you have different regimes for the same content? And why do you have different regimes for the, the, same, uh, the same physical equipment that goes to someone's home? That's the mechanism that we're under right now, and that's kind of, in, in many different Respects. It's not just in the cable industry, but this, this whole question of like, what's an information service? What's a you know, what's a what's a different types of services that the FCC regulate needs to be figured out in the future, especially as technologies are changing. Regardless of how technology changes, uh, we need policy that enables us to be able to provide content for citizens. If these companies had to pay a flat fee for their wires and the rights of way, that would be one thing. But they're paying a percentage. And as the percentage of that changes and goes down, it would be appropriate for us to continue getting the same amount of money back or more as they're making more profit. And you're right, local communities don't have any say in that because this is all set at the federal level and they've made a mess of it. I think it's fair. I think it's fair. In our ideal world, five years from now, we've solved all the problems we want to solve. Um, we have uh, municipal networks in many places that are delivering services. What should a municipal network do to encourage this local information ecosystem to make sure the access centers are, are doing their job well? Well, I mean, I think you can, you can look at operations around the country that are providing uh, local content that's meaningful, um, civic information that's useful. Um, for the the you know the the needs of the of local citizens, there's a, a host of different examples of, of that around the country where people are either uh, where organizations or in some cases government entities are are, are providing um, you know uh, local information about elections, local information uh, about uh, cultural resources, um, educational programming. Um, things that are really distinctive about uh, uh, the local community uh, via media production. You should, you should be looking at that as a as sort of a, as a way to be making these ch channels useful. Just providing a channel with no content is kind of nonsensical, first of all. I mean, I would right. say. So you need, to be able to, you need to be able to provide content. I mean, that actually mirrors this other problem that like, industries have when they've got you know, 500 channels with nothing on. If you have a municipal channel and there's nothing on, no one will use it. So you need to be thinking about ways in which you're providing content that's meaningful for people so that they use it and appreciate it. Because a resource that no one uses is, is meaningless. 
Um, and at their best, these channels uh, can be used and relied upon for local information that's meaningful about how you can participate in government, how you can get a job, how you can uh, take advantage of uh, cultural resources, how you can express yourself and, and the needs of your family, how you can connect with other people uh, from your uh, ethnic community, from your religious community, and your spiritual life, any, any of a number of things that are distinct and unique about the, the local community that you live within. That's something that a national channel will not provide. You know, it just can't. So uh, we need to be thinking about that. The other, the other thing I think is important that still is a gap that many communities are not addressing is that there is, while many people have access to broadband and many people have access to the, all of the wealth of information that's available um, uh, through broadband networks, um, Many people who are disadvantaged or have lower educational attainment or have significant challenges uh, to be able to be um, really a part of that economy, that broadband economy, need to have training. Um, and, and I think that's a unique opportunity for these public educational government uh, organizations to be able to provide training. They have histories of doing technical training. That's the reason why when, when I was at, in St. Paul, we... We, looked, we partnered specifically with organizations that were interested in providing um, broadband training to be able to get people from disadvantaged communities um, to be a part of the economy to get a job uh, as part of the broadband economy or to connect with uh, other generations in their family or to connect with, uh, uh, connect with other communities to be politically active. Um, and these are people who have disabilities or who uh, have uh, had low educational attainment in their lives, trying to get a GED, people who don't have high English skills. Um, and over the, over the course of over a decade, you know, we, we actually created jobs and got more people into the economy in St. Paul and Minneapolis through that educational training work. That's significant. Uh, and I think that's an opportunity that we need to be thinking about if we want to try to reach full attainment of all Americans in the broadband economy. It can't just be about price um, and price incentives. It can't all be about economics. We know that we need to be providing content that's meaningful for people so that they want to be a, a part of that economy and be a part of these channels. And we know that we need to be able to provide training for people to be a part of it because it's not as simple as turning on a button to watch television. So that's a unique it's a unique uh, niche that uh, these organizations can take advantage of and, and, and be meaningful uh, uh, for local communities over the course, I think, of the next decade or two. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Mike, and, and helping us to better understand uh, the history of PEG and uh, the, uh, the future of these uh, public access stations. You're welcome, Chris, and good luck. We encourage you to visit freepress.net. For more on PEG, check out Alliance for Community Media at allcommunitymedia.org. We also provide several articles on PEG at muninetworks.org. Just follow the PEG tag. We want you to email us with questions or ideas for the show. Write to podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter. We are at Community Nets. Chris is a busy tweeter, so you will not be disappointed. This show was released on January 14th, 2014. Thank you to the group Haggard Beat for their song, Laszlo, licensed using Creative Commons. Thanks again for listening.